Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we talk about issues of international image, foreign policy, and a few other things along the way. And today, I want to raise a listener's question, and it's a really interesting question. What would the implications for the image of the UK be if the peace process in Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Agreement and so forth, if that collapses and we returned to uh, a situation of trouble in uh, Northern Ireland? So, uh, Simon, how to slice this uh, interesting question? Mm. It is an interesting question, isn't it? And I, and I think it's, uh, it's the sort of question that uh, people in positions of responsibility uh, in the national and the devolved government are probably asking themselves a great deal at the moment. Um, and obviously not just will it damage the image of uh, the United Kingdom, but will it damage... Uh, the image um, of Northern Ireland uh, separately, or the image of England separately, and I think the um, I think the only possible answer, quick answer to it, uh, is really it depends what happens. So it it, it depends what we mean by collapse. Um, if heaven forbid, uh, we 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 do end up facing a total collapse of the agreement, followed by violence, um, then which is not inconceivable, um, then there's, there seems to be no question whatsoever that that will have an impact, at least in the short term, um, on the image of the, the UK and um, at least two of its constituent parts. Because as, as we know, Nick, and it's the thing we've, we've mentioned on a number of occasions in past episodes of the podcast, uh, public opinion internationally is highly intolerant of conflict. Um, yes, uh, actual physical conflict, people hurting each other, they they can't bear it. And it is one of the very, very, very few things that will actually damage uh, the image of a country. So if we go back to the, the days of the troubles, and I, right. us, of course, hope it won't go that far. And it seems so unlikely, but then a lot of unlikely things are happening at the moment. Um, if we go back to that, then yes, we're looking at big trouble for, 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 for images, probably for a long time. But until that point, I think it's relatively unlikely that it will have a broad impact on, on uh, shall we say, ordinary people's perceptions. And the reason for that is that <laughs> so-called ordinary people, I've never quite figured out what an ordinary person is, but there you go, we'll use the phrase just to distinguish them from uh, policymakers and bureaucrats. Um, ordinary people really don't think very much or know very much or care very much about the domestic politics of other countries, unless they have mm -hmm. a good reason to, unless they have a family member living there or they've lived and worked there themselves uh, or something of that sort. Honestly, these look like tiny details once you leave the country. And of course, the politicians in Westminster and the civil servants, uh, these issues loom very, very large because they're politically very mm -hmm. significant on the domestic stage. And so it's quite understandable why a UK politician would imagine that the tiniest slippage, the tiniest disagreement, the tiniest misunderstanding over all of this issue could appear somehow cataclysmic for the reputation of the country. But actually, that's not the way it works. Most people wouldn't know what you were talking about if you told them that there was a disagreement over um, the uh, 
over trade barriers in the Irish Sea or anything of that sort. Mm-hmm. Well, I, so commenting on this from a historical point of view, uh, I could I would certainly say that going uh, back to the 1970s, the troubles in Northern Ireland were the chief problem in British public diplomacy, and the thing that the Foreign Office was trying hardest to uh, overcome. Uh, and uh, because of the nature of Britain's uh, response, basically British counterinsurgency policy in Northern Ireland, it was a, a global issue of uh, Britain ab- abusing um, human rights of mm. uh, people who'd been interned and uh, uh, and um, uh, that sort of uh, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, uh, Britain had learned uh, ways of talking about alternative. Uh, ways of talking about other things, or mm. and talking effectively uh, about uh, problems in in Northern Ireland, um, but I, I, I so there was a way of um, uh, isolating the issue at the edge of um, the image of the UK. I don't think it particularly helped the um, uh, solve the the, the problem, uh, mm. and I would hate to see. Um, the uh, situation return to uh, uh, to, to that. It, you know, it's a shame that we don't have uh, in-depth measurement from that time as to what people, uh, ordinary people around the world, thought, thought about the UK. But I, I certainly remember it coming up in conversation with uh, uh, my other young Europeans when 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 travelling. Mm. I think that a um, We've got two things here to talk about for the present. Uh, one is what would happen to um, the uh, to to Northern Ireland itself, mm-hmm. and the way in which it's had a good image, and people have invested there, and uh, it's had uh, growth, and we've had kind of a, a virtuous circle of uh, recovery and growth in that p- uh, part of the country, uh, and then uh, the way in which uh, the UK has. Uh, prospered in general with uh, the uh, uh, solution in Northern Ireland, just adding a little to the to the tailwind of uh, Britain's reputation. Yeah. Um, my suspicion is that the uh, we we have or the government of the UK has a stewardship of Northern Ireland, and that the big damage would be done to the people of uh, Northern Ireland rather than to the, uh, in the short term, to the image of the UK. And the, the, yeah. the best reason for uh, making sure that the peace process doesn't break down is the welfare of the people in, in Northern Ireland themselves and not the general reputation. Yes. And not the general reputation of the UK. Yes. But let's, let's also not forget um, that if things do go badly wrong, the reputational damage isn't limited to Northern Ireland. Um, it, the effect will be, as it almost certainly was back in the 70s, general for the island of Ireland. Um, yes. For, for, for the simple reason that the majority of people overseas don't really understand um, the, the difference. They don't realise that these are separate polities. And as far as they're concerned, it's just Ireland. And part of it's called Northern because it's at the top and part of it's not because it's at the bottom. And so the troubles in Northern Ireland, the part of speech that goes missing when people talk to each other about that is Northern. And you Mm -hmm. end up with a sense that Ireland has become a dangerous place again. And that's very bad news 
uh, yes. for people who live far, far, far away in the Republic of Ireland and have got relatively little to do with all of this. Well, one of the positive stories that had come out of this was highlighted to me a couple of months ago now when, when I was at the expo in Dubai. I went into the Irish Pavilion and uh, uh, the first thing you do is you, you would sit on, the, on these kind of, um, uh, it was like a, uh, a raised area in the middle of an auditorium. And I, I looked down at this, this area where we were sitting and they were kind of hexagons like mm. the Giant's Causeway. And right. a, a film started up and I thought, wait a minute, those Irish dancers are dancing in the hedges and that's in, in Northern Ireland and, and that mm. beach is in Northern Ireland. And I, mm. and I as the film, uh, sort of musical dancing film uh, played, I realized that they were switching between Northern and Southern Ireland. So I asked the uh, pavilion guide about this and he said, oh, sure, we have one tourist authority for the island of mm. Ireland. And so uh, we are... Um, bringing all these uh, images uh, together oh. and um, th- that uh, it was a, a shared pavilion effectively with Northern Irish uh, musicians contributing to the musical program mm. uh, uh, and even some Northern, I- Northern Irish exhibitors. He oh. took me behind the scenes to see uh, a display that had been donated by people in the north for the uh, private meeting area of the pavilion. And it was a a powerful thing. Uh, Two large uh, pieces of stained glass reflecting the Protestant culture of the northern part of Ireland. Uh, One was shaped like a cross and included an orange parade and uh, um, shipbuilders. And these stained glass panels had been donated by former Protestant paramilitaries who now had re-skilled as stained glass workers and were, uh, they wanted to make a contribution to the All-Ireland Pavilion. And I thought, my goodness, what a great story of uh, the community working across the old dividing lines to promote the entire Ireland and of the entire island of Ireland, and um, uh, and yeah, that, that doesn't seem to be something that anybody else uh, noticed, and it certainly wasn't reported in the in the British press, where yeah. commentary on promotion of Northern Ireland in Dubai was limited to you know a few little bits about it at the at the main UK pavilion. Yes. So I think that there was a lot of really positive uh, cross border external communication and working together on the tourist image was a a really powerful thing. And I would hate to see that lost. But, you know, to be honest, it hasn't really been celebrated. I I think that uh, with regards to London, it's not a thing that people had noticed or commented on. Yes. Well, uh, cooperation, particularly in um, economic uh, areas um, has been going on quietly um, in the northern part of Ireland for, for, for decades without it really being noticed or observed or one is tempted to say appreciated uh, in other parts of the country. I remember, oh, it must have been nearly 20 years ago, um, being shown around an initiative uh, which was called the, the Letterkenny Derry uh, Innovation Corridor, the Technology Corridor. And uh, basically what it was was a virtual corridor crossing the then border um, between uh, between Northern Ireland and the 
the northern part of the Republic of Ireland. And um, they were all working together and they were doing innovation and they were doing startups and technology and all the rest of it. And it was working very well. And I remember uh, the, the, the organizers that I spoke to at the time said that it, it wasn't so much a problem uh, working across borders, it was actually a benefit because it created, um, I, I can't remember exactly what the expression was, but something like uh, more vibrations in the room. <laughs> and that's right. always be a general truth that um, the more mixed your teams are and the more different the backgrounds they come from, um, the more original you're thinking and the more stimulating the experience of collaboration becomes. So it's always a good thing to do that. Um, you know, from difference comes innovation. And that's that's not a statement of political correctness. I couldn't care less about political correctness. It's just a statement of fact that your cultural background defines to a scary degree the things that you're capable of inventing. And if you've got a bunch of people from the same background, the same religion, the same uh, language, and all the rest of it working together, they're relatively less likely to come up with any good ideas. But if you if you stir up the gene pool and you get people from different places and different cultures and different backgrounds, you'll have more ideas than you know what to do with. And the sooner um, more neighboring countries start to realize this and start to start benefiting from, from that effect, the better, really. Well, I, I absolutely agree. And uh, a thing that comes up when you are analyzing successful partnerships uh, time and time again is the need to recognize difference between partners and to actually start to celebrate the difference and to see uh, differences as part of the uh, part of the strength. Uh, and it's not just differences of, of uh, geographical identity, but quite often. Uh, differences of generation come up yeah, uh, and working across generations can be one of the ways in which um, new new ideas are uh, generated. Yeah. But where we were going just before that, looking at um, the things that the politicians tend to focus on as distinct from the things that the general public tends to focus on, I think that's a point worth emphasizing that um, People who are responsible for, for making and executing policy um, at the national level, but also to a degree at the city and regional level, um, they do unavoidably, inescapably live in a bit of a bubble. And um, <coughs> it's very, very rare for them ever to meet um, uh, members of overseas populations because it's just not part mm -hmm. of their job. And the people that they meet most frequently are basically their peers from other countries. Um, so in other words, members of, of foreign elites who are their equivalent in status and influence. And what you learn from them about how your country is viewed is very different from what you learn if you engage with public opinion. And I think this is a really, um, it's very important to maintain a robust distinction between these two things. I mean, to put it simply, most government officials only ever meet um, people who are polite about their country. Um, you only meet right. diplomats whose job it is to be polite um, or investors whose job it is to look for the best in your country um, and know its future potential. And you very seldom, if ever, uh, meet ordinary people on the street. And ordinary people on the street, their views of your country is, probably works in almost exactly the opposite way from that of the elite. They're not thinking about what you might do in the future, how you might grow or improve. All they're thinking about is what you've done in the past. So it's a little bit like um, uh, judge and jury. The, the, the reason yes. why in, in, in court 
we don't tell the jury about the past offences of the of the the person in the dock is is because we know that the jury is likely to judge them on the basis of what they've done previously, and of course, good justice doesn't look at what you've done; it's look it looks at what you might do or might not do in the future, and it, and it's 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 a pretty good metaphor because that you know the, the 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 diplomats and the investors are like good judges; they know what you've done in the past, and they also know and believe and hope that you can change for the better. And they're prepared to accept that. So the politicians end up with this idea that everybody admires and respects their country and sees its right. potential and its growth and its benefit and its talent and all the rest of it. And they're sometimes terribly surprised when I come along and I show them data, for example, from the Nation Brands Index, which shows that, um, that mass opinion in whichever country it is we're looking at is barely even aware of their country's existence. And right. uh, probably very out of date, and in their view, very negative. And the the response. This, is, so yes, go ahead. So go on. Sorry. So, um, but this gets this gets to the one word that has come up in our conversations before: relevance, mm. and um, countries being judged not on what the government thinks of as relevant or what the government is proud of but on the relevance of the country to the international audience. And I'm sure that one of the problems for Britain in the 1970s at the time of the Troubles was the relevance of negative things in Northern Ireland in diaspora politics around the world. So the fact that Irish Americans could perform their Irishness by caring about uh, the Troubles um, was was part of Britain's problem, and you had uh, diaspora communities raising money uh, to um, supply weapons to uh, paramilitaries in uh, in in the northern uh, northern part of Ireland, and um, and certainly at that point the troubles were very relevant to a significant minority in the United States, which. Mm-hmm. Uh, resulted in problems for uh, Britain's image. Jump yes. forward to our own time, and I think the good stories coming out of Northern Ireland were uh, relevant to uh, international audiences and contributed to an idea that problems in the world were uh, soluble. Yes, I mean, you know, you think of how uh, in the eighties, Northern Ireland and South Africa and Israel Palestine, all three seemed insoluble. Uh, And then um, massive movements made to address all three, only to see Israel-Palestine falling back into difficulty. Uh, But but I think that that led to a a tremendous feeling of new possibilities and helped um, build a a, a general sense of well-being in the 90s. It, it, it It was part of the part of the uh, positivity of the of the era. Yes, absolutely. And that right. was the general relevance. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, this, this skill or ability of politicians to be able to imagine uh, what is relevant to public opinion um, and distinguish that, to be clear in their own minds, the distinction between that and what's relevant to people like themselves I mean, you look at that from a slightly different angle, and that's a pretty good definition of populism, um, if perhaps a rather polite definition of it. But a populist politician is somebody who, almost by definition, is sensitive 
to what is relevant uh, to, here's that expression again, ordinary people. But the interesting thing is that international populists are very few and far between, because almost by definition, the populist is somebody who is uh, well attuned to, uh, the, the, to, to the feelings of uh, ordinary voters in their own country, but not abroad. And the majority of populists couldn't care less what foreigners think because foreigners aren't on their agenda. So it's an interesting sort of uh, mind game that you might play. What would an international populist look like? What would her or his uh, mandate or ambition be? And what could they achieve? Supposing you had a leader who really was sensitive uh, to the topics that are relevant and meaningful and powerful to a much broader public opinion than the one that they get just in their own country. You know, perhaps there's an argument that says uh, Nelson Mandela, not necessarily through any particular genius of his own, but just because of the issues that he dealt with, they were of such broad relevance that they made him popular, not just Mm -hmm. in the Republic of South Africa, but almost throughout the world because it resonated. And I wonder if that resonance was in a sense, despite him, it was just because of his importance that it applied across so many other countries and appealed um, to so many nationalities. But can you can you think of a statesman or a stateswoman who's had that knack of populism on an international scale? No, you know that's a very interesting, uh, very interesting question. I, I think that there have been people who historically have spoken to the needs of the entire world. And you can see how at at particular moments, say Woodrow Wilson at the end of the First World War, Franklin Roosevelt at the end of the Second World War, uh, Mm. spoke to needs that uh, were widely recognized uh, around the world and were seen as being more significant than just uh, for their own uh, for, for, for their own country, uh, as if yes. they were working in the global interest. But yes. um, maybe uh, we know too much about our leaders now that we're, um, it, it's, it's hard to see somebody working in the same way in the global interest. And certainly the, the people who are in position to um, uh, work for the collective, I'm thinking of the uh, senior people at the United Nations, don't mm. have anything like the kind of profile that they had uh, 50 years ago, right. um, you know, 60 years ago. People like Doug Hamshaw or uh, mm. Trigvi Lee were, uh, ha- had a kind of um, uh, resonance with international audiences and uh, that um, uh, uh, Gutierrez doesn't... doesn't uh, uh, doesn't match. Yes, well, I'm sure that's, as you say, it's partly our growing, uh, ever-growing cynicism about people in positions of authority generally, which, by the way, is a subject for a whole episode. Um, where do we get our politicians from and what, why, why do we think so poorly of them these days? The image, of, the image of the political class, it's a really interesting subject. But I think it's also partly because of the image of the UN, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. back then in the days of Hammarskjöld and so forth, the UN was still relatively fresh and very inspiring and very exciting to people. People understood exactly why it was still there because the living memories of the Second World War. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the UN suffers from something of the same problem as the European Union. 
that uh, both of them have become somewhat re less relevant to general publics around the world for the simple reason that they've been moderately successful in achieving their yes, early yes. aims and ambitions. Um, and the problem now is we, a lot of people, don't know what they're there for anymore. Um, and, and therefore the problem, as I'm always telling the European Union, um, for their, to, to cure their fading relevance to European citizens, is not to spend more money on communications, is not to tell their story more effectively, it's to have a story, um, to, 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 to give themselves a new raison d'être, because um, yes. by and large, uh, they've done the original one, and it's time now to pick another. But we're lucky enough, as I said in an earlier edition of the podcast, to live in an age where it, there really is l'embarras du choix. There are so many uh, enormous issues that um, the UN and the EU can seize on and make their own. The UN does its best to seize on all of them, and I think that's part of the problem. You know, the SDGs, mm -hmm. that's 17 cataclysmic problems, and it's a little mm -hmm. bit difficult to answer in a short sentence, what's the UN there for? But do you think, for example, that the SDGs are well known outside of this elite bubble we've been talking about? I don't think I've ever heard a regular person uh, raise the SDGs as a, um, uh, as a category or even uh, been aware that they were, uh, they were there with targets for... Um, for, for 2030, that the world had actually agreed. The whole concept seems not to have been communicated outside of the elite. In, indeed, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, I'm sure. And I've had exactly the same experience. And amongst the people who talk about these things and know about these things and work in these areas, it's almost become an assumption that the whole world knows all about the SDGs. And it's quite, quite false. The whole world has no idea of the existence of these sustainable development goals, I'd better spell it out in case any of our listeners uh, don't know what they are. Um, and it's a useful piece of work uh, and uh, a lovely piece of, of graphic design. But um, the reality of the matter is that the whole chunk called now let's communicate that to the rest of humanity, as so often with the UN, um, was uh, kind of mishandled or underestimated or left too long. Um, so often when the UN talk about these, these, uh, th these great projects, they're so good at the analysis, so good at the research, so good at the planning and the thinking. But then when it comes to that tiny detail called the world's population and how are we going to get them to know about this and motivate them, it's usually down to somebody saying, oh, we'd better see if we can raise a couple of million and hire a PR agency. And of course, that's largely yes. inadequate uh, for the scale of the project. <laughs> Um, yes, well, it would be laughable if it wasn't. No, I so agree scary. that you know there's that there's the line in the old film where the the prison warder says, "What we've got here is a failure to communicate," and uh, I, I think that's correct. But when we examine responses to the SDGs, one mm. of the most striking things is that uh, if you look at what do people think about the problems. Yeah. Priorities are different. So there is no consensus around the world as to which the most serious uh, of those problems is, which the priority should be. Mm. You do get regional um, emphasis. It's quite interesting that, for example, both in uh, North America and South America, uh, the most serious problem is seen as being income inequality. Mm -mm. 
I, th- I think that that's uh, and everybody. The other thing that comes out of analysis about priorities is everybody thinks education is a good idea. It may mm. not be their number one, but almost everywhere it's the number two. If it's not number one, it's number two, and mm. that is a tremendous opportunity for the, a country that wants to be relevant, a country yeah. that wants to be of value to an international audience. Why not work on uh, education? So yeah. to switch back to the conversation about British soft power, um, the most Im- or one of the key things for Britain is to remain relevant to international education, to yeah. remind people uh, that British universities, British research uh, are making uh, positive contributions to the global good and to run the country in such a way that those institutions are, uh, are, are sustained. Uh, so I, I, I think there are many more ways in which international opinion is touched by um, healthy British education than by inside knowledge of success in the Northern Ireland peace process. Yes, absolutely. And let's not forget, of course, the other good thing about education is that if you attract more people from around the world to come and study within your borders, then you're uh, creating cohorts of new voluntary and very persuasive ambassadors for your own country, right. which is why the Chevening Scholarships and, and their similar um, projects around the world are so, are so effective and such an important part of public diplomacy. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's a really important place to uh, make investment and uh, to um, put uh, you know, at- attention for, for a healthy contribution uh, going forward. Well, I think that's all. Sorry? <laughs> Sorry, Nick. I, I just wanted to put in one ever so slightly cynical note right at the end. The, the kinds of studies and a lot of this data about the um, about the, the SDGs that you're referring to uh, was carried out in the UN 75th um, anniversary report. And uh, it's very clear to me that these questions about is education important for the future of the world that we live in, those are the kinds of questions which in social surveys you have to be very careful about because it's the classic question that looks as if you ought to say yes to it. Um, <laughs> and so people do. Um, to what extent they actually <laughs> believe in that um, and actually have ever thought about it is another point. But nonetheless, you're absolutely right in what you say, that it's, it's a critical area to focus on. <laughs> so don't, don't bet the farm on people admiring education, in other words. Okay, well, uh, on that bombshell, uh, I think that's all we have time for this week. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you have ideas for things we can talk about, do let us know. Thank you very much for listening. I'm still Nick Cole. And I'm still Simon Anhold.